Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 3rd, 2019, and I think this is show number 756. I have been messing up the show numbers right and left, and I, I think it's like... I don't know. I have some kind of disability in figuring out what the show number is. Um, I think I screwed up uh, Chit Chat Across the Pond again last week. I don't know. It's I, I go through a very robust process. I look at the last episode, and I increment up by one, and I'm almost always wrong. Some I, I was off by 200 and something on Chit Chat the other day. So anyway, it might be, might be episode 756. Who knows? Well, in Chit Chat Across the Pond this week, Bart Bouchatz is back with Programming by Stealth episode or installment, he calls it, 85, in which we review objects as arrays in JavaScript. I got to say, I'm really enjoying his work circling us back through things we learned a long time ago, because he's also teaching us those things and telling us about new things that we can do since the language has actually progressed since we last saw those tools. I actually got my homework done this week and done well. I did it like three or four different ways. They call it refactoring when you make it better. Um, I have to admit, I had an awful lot of help from my teaching assistant, Dorothy. Never could have got it done without her. Anyway, for the homework, we created a set of cards on screen that showed the currency rate as a function of a base country. So like if it was uh, versus the euro, I guess that's not a country, let's say uh, versus New Zealand, you would see that New Zealand, uh, what the exchange rate for different countries were based on New Zealand. Anyway, it was super fun. We got to use Ajax and JavaScript and for loops and looping and mustaches and templates and all kinds of nerdy goodness. Anyway, I had a blast. If you'd like to learn along with us, check out Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice, or you can listen right over at podfeet.com, where you'll find links to Bart's fabulous tutorial show notes and all of the examples. Dumb. 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 Dumb questions. Dumb questions. Dumb questions. How do I? What is? How come I always have to? It's time for Dumb Question Corner. Hey, Allison. Here's my dumb question. I hear you talk about homebrew for the Mac on the show, yet I'm not sure why I need it. What is it that I'm missing, and why should I install homebrew for the Mac? Anyway, that's my dumb question. Thank you. So the voice you just heard is Ryan Winkler. You may remember him from last week's show where he did a recording about the iDevices switch for us. He actually sent in this dumb question... uh, Boy, it's like a month ago, and I kept procrastinating answering because it was going to take me a little bit of thought to try to see whether he needs homebrew, and conversely, whether you might need homebrew. Just because I need homebrew, I needed to figure out whether it was really broadly applicable. Well, I got to tell him, the answer in short is maybe, maybe not. Let's walk through what homebrew is and what kind of fun things you can do with it so you can decide if it might be fun for you. To understand Homebrew, let's take a little bit of a step back and talk about open source packages. Open source is a term that describes tools and applications that people write and then give away under a variety of different licenses. The licenses vary from allowing you to use, modify, and distribute for commercial purposes without attribution to more restrictive licenses that, you know, maybe say you can't modify, but you have to give attribution, but you can use it for commercial purposes and absolutely every combination in between. Well, often open source tools come as pretty little installer DMG files you double-click just like an expensive application. And often commercial applications include open source components. 
but there's a vast layer of interesting tools and applications you may never have heard of that you can play with that are accessible via a different path. Homebrew is a way of accessing open source tools via the command line, also known to Mac users as the terminal. Here's an example. Many people at some time or another have had a piece of audio or video that's in the wrong format. They need an app to transcode from one format to another. Maybe it's an audio file that they want to move from AIFF to MP3 or a video from MOV to MP4. Every single one of these apps uses an open source library called FFmpeg to accomplish this task, but it's all under the hood. Now, I think I'm going to slide over into some examples to explain how I got hooked on Homebrew and the tools available through it. Many years ago in my corporate job, I ran a little project to start a podcasting network inside this giant company I was working in. I was the boss of the other two people on the project, so they did the technical work, creating the database and web app to make it happen. It was kind of hokey, and there was bureaucracy slathered all over this thing, but eventually my little team of three, including me, got a passable service created. It was audio only. But then my audience, our audience, I should say, wanted video podcasts as well. That didn't look like too hard of a problem, but the bureaucrats weighed in and announced that they wanted a still shot of the company logo stitched onto the front of every single video distributed via our little podcast network inside the company firewall. By this time, I had changed jobs, and then I had become a technical fellow instead of a boss lady, so these people no longer worked directly for me. I went to the guy who had written the original code and told him about this new requirement, and he said, you figure it out. It was probably the harshest symbol of my loss of positional power, but that's a whole nother story. Now, remember, I was a mechanical engineer with a master's in kinematics, so a reasonably bright fellow, but I was not a programmer. But I decided to take on this challenge. I started by learning all about codecs. Codec stands for coder decoder. I then learned about the difference between a codec and a container. Codecs have things like bitrate and sample rate inside them, for example. A container is the name you see on the outside of an encoded audio video, video file, while the codec is exactly how it was encoded. Now, I'm going to stop there because this subject is a rat hole of epic proportions, but just keep in mind those are two different things. I did discover that there was this little library, our little friend FFmpeg, that would encode and decode videos and audios. More importantly, it could stitch files together. This was the tool I needed to add a still frame to the front end of a video and export a whole new video. I figured out how to find the dimensions of the video so the right still frame size was stitched on the front. I also learned that given the right parameters passed to FFmpeg, I could export this new stitched together file without transcoding the video again, which meant I, may be, I might be able to do this whole thing without a great loss in quality. Now, I'm, gonna walk, I'm not going to walk any further down memory lane here, but I did, in the end, succeed in stitching that darn company logo still frame to the front of every video we produced. The project overall wasn't really a success, but I learned a heck of a lot because of that formerly obedient employee saying, you do it. Back when I did all of this work, downloading the FFmpeg library required me to install what are called dependencies. I did have a wicked smart former employee of mine do the heavy lifting here because it's basically the seventh circle of H-E double toothpicks to go through what are called dependencies. Basically, you install stuff and it goes, oh yeah, I forgot that's dependent on this. Okay, install this one. Oh, I forgot that one's dependent on that. Oh wait, I forgot it's dependent on that. You can just go on in this. I mean, it can go on for hours that you just keep finding all these dependencies. Now, that was the past. 
And that's exactly where Homebrew Now comes into play. If you install Homebrew using a single terminal command available over at brew.sh first, you don't have too much to work to do. You basically issue this terminal command to install Homebrew, and you sit there with your hands folded politely until the text stops scrolling on screen. Next, you type the incredibly complex command. Get ready for it. This is to get FFmpeg. Are you ready? Brew install FFmpeg. That's all you type. And again, with the politely folded hands until it's spitting nonsense on the screen and it gets done with that. And now you have FFmpeg. Takes about 30 seconds for each command versus literally hours and hours we spent fighting dependencies in the old days. Now, none of that explains why you might want to use Homebrew because I'd have to answer the question of whether you need FFmpeg. I can only think to answer by example. I did need FFmpeg again, and this example was for the podcast. I use a tool called ID3 Editor to add my ID3 tags to the Chit Chat Across the Pond episodes. This tool adds my name, the name of the show, the name of the episode, the year and the album, and the artwork and the genre as podcast, all embedded inside the MP3 file. And that's why you see a nice little logo and you know what what the uh, podcast is and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, the tool ID3 Editor can save some of those items since they're consistent from week to week, like the logo, but there are some pieces that have to be done manually. For about five years, I entered those fields manually every single week, but one day I got tired of it and I decided to do something about it. I wrote a little bash shell script to create my very own ID3 Editor. It took me a while to figure it out, but I determined early on that I could use our old friend FFmpeg to change things like the image and my name and the podcast name and license and genre. The entire script, without comments or line feeds to make it more readable, is 15 lines long. Now, sure, I spent weeks writing this tool, and it only saves me about 45 seconds a week to use my own tool, but those weeks writing it were fun, and I learned a lot, and every time I use my little script, I'm happy instead of irritated. Here's another example that does not involve FFmpeg. I think a slight drop shadow on an image really makes it stand out on the plain white background of a web page. Years ago, I found a little app called Drop Shadow from Dell Soul Software that would let me drag an image onto it, and boom, the image would have a drop shadow. In the tool, I was able to modify the color of the shadow and the thickness of the shadow, and it was glorious. Pretty much every image on podfeet.com from that era was shadowed with drop shadow. Sadly, Del Sol software disappeared, which made their app useless over time. In 2016, I had started to get my programming chops sharpened with Bard's help, and I figured out how to write my own drop shadow app. I used Homebrew to download a command line tool called ImageMagic from ImageMagic.org. That's spelled M-A-G-I-C-K, by the way. To install ImageMagic, I used the crazy complicated command, brew space install. Image Magic, and I was in business. Now, the only problem with Image Magic was that it has so many options to play with, and it was really complicated because of that. Well, I eventually found some code online that was close to what I wanted, somebody using Image Magic to put a drop shadow on, and I modified it to set my angle, color, thickness, and opacity of my shadow the way I wanted it. I then dropped it into an automator action, and my own personal drop shadow tool was ready for action, if you'll forget the play of words. Of course, I wrote this all up in a blog post way back then called Drop Shadow App Made with Automator and Image Magic. That sounds really hard and complicated, but once you get over the idea that taking other people's open source code and modifying it is not immoral, 
it's actually not that hard to write scripts. I do make sure to put in a comment in my own code saying who I borrowed the code from in case I ever distribute something I wrote. I want other people to know where I got it. Now, there's a funny punchline to this story of my Drop Shadow app. I was very proud of it, and I used it for years. But then I got to know Helma from the Netherlands, who is a student of the Programming by Stealth series. She happens to be crazy good at CSS or cascading style sheets. She explained that I could non-destructively add a drop shadow to my images simply by styling them with CSS. She had me create a style, and then I just call it with a little code I plopped into Mars Edit, the tool I use for blogging. Now I have 100% consistency across all images if I choose to drop shadow them. If I ever change my mind on what I want that drop shadow to look like, I can change them all with a few touches of the keys. All right, here's another example. There was the awesome tip brought to us by the inimitable Nightwise in January of 2018. He explained how you can reinstall Mac App Store apps from the command line, starting with our little friend Homebrew. He showed us the terribly complex command. Get ready? Brew space install space mass to start the process. MAS for Mac App Store. From there, he explained that you can uh, you can list all of the Mac App Store apps you have installed on your Mac with the command mass space list. This list includes a unique identifying number for each application. In equally mystical language, given this list with its numbers, you can install any of those apps on another Mac or the same Mac after nuke and pave by typing mass install followed by that unique number. And of course, there's a blog post all about that over on podfeed.com. Here's another time I used Brew. Remember how I figured out how to get a, get a good 360 video out of the 180 separate videos per hour my Tesla creates? Well, I didn't wrote the, write the code that did that, but I did have to have the lovely and memorable FFmpeg installed in order for that to work. Now, there's a little tool that might make Homebrew just a little less intimidating, and it's called Cakebrew from cakebrew.com. With Cakebrew, you can access the repository for Homebrew with a graphical user interface instead of the command line. One of the things I really like about Cakebrew is that it shows me all of the installed formulae. That's the dependencies and libraries and everything I use. I like it because I did not have to install all of this stuff myself. There are 69 different formulae in there, and I only asked for a couple of them. Everything else, all those dependencies, came along on their own. Now, I'm glad my former subordinate challenged me to figure out the video stitching on my own. I'm glad I learned about FFmpeg and about how annoying chasing down dependencies are. I'm glad that I learned about homebrew so I didn't have to fight dependencies anymore. I'm glad I figured out how to use what I learned about FFmpeg from work to help me create my own ID3 editor. I love that I learned about image magic from Bart and that I learned how to make a bash script so I could make my own little app to make my drop shadows. I love that I learned about CSS from Helma and found a better way to do my drop shadows. I was so proud that I was able to get my Tesla video out partially because of FFmpeg from Homebrew. It's this constant desire to improve how I do things and learn new tools to do them that makes creating the podcasts and blogs so darn much fun. So do you need Homebrew? Maybe, maybe not. But if you can figure out something you want to do that requires a command line interface to get you to it, you might just find a place in your heart for Homebrew like I did. Now, after I posted the article I've just told you about, Nightwise commented on Facebook that of course you need homebrew. He pointed out one of his favorite command line tools that he gets from homebrew, and that's a YouTube downloader. The command to get it is of course simple, brew install youtube-dl. 
Nightwise was kind enough to link to an article he wrote over on nightwise.com where he narrows down the options for the reader. In, uh, let's see, I installed YouTube DL and I was overwhelmed with the options, so his webpage on it was super useful. Now, in order to prove to Ryan that he really does need homebrew, I decided to do a meta example. Remember last week when Ryan did the review of the iDevices switch? When he originally sent it over to me, he only sent me the video. I had to ask him for a separate audio file, and he dug back through his old records and was able to find the original audio file and sent it over to me. But with Nightwise's instructions, he could have extracted the audio from the video using the tool YouTube-DL that you download using Brew. Now, of course, you can also use this to download videos and not just extract the audio. I know some videos are protected, so this tool won't always work, but for those that do allow downloads, it sure is useful when you want a quick and simple way to download a video. So, let me ask you, do you need Brew? I was a big fan of the original AirPods, and I moved up to AirPods 2 when they were available as well. There wasn't much of a difference between the two models, but I was super excited about having wireless charging on the AirPods case. You may remember that we bought the Ampere Trifold Wireless Charger around the same time, which had a nice charging pad for the AirPods case. I have a confession to make, though. I haven't used the Ampere Charger in ages. We unplugged it and threw threw it in a drawer. We both did. Turns out that laying the AirPods down or even a phone down on the Ampere wasn't the carefree experience we'd expected. We had to fiddle around a lot to get our phones and the AirPods lined up just right to actually get a charge. Turned out to be way easier to plug in a lightning cable. The good news is that the Ampere case came with a fantastic, I'm sorry, the Ampere came with a fantastic 60 watt charger for very little money. And I use that charger all the time. I'm still in absolute love with the OmniCharge battery pack with USB-C and USB-A charging, and when I'm on the road, I use the Ampere 60-watt charger to recharge it. Half the time, I plug the OmniCharge into power and then use it to charge my MacBook Pro, my iPad Pro, and my iPhone and my watch, so it's sort of like a hub charger thing. Anyway, I tell you all of that to explain that the upgrade to the second generation AirPods was probably not that big other than getting fresh new batteries. This week, Apple announced availability and shipping of the rumored AirPods Pro. So I bought a a pair and I thought it'd be interesting to compare this upgrade versus the previous one. Unlike the previous changes, the AirPods Pro are significantly different from the previous generation AirPods. I'm one of the lucky people with the right ear hole shape to wear all of the headphones Apple has ever sold. They go in, they stay in comfortably, and they don't fall out. I live with someone whose ear holes are wrong, at least according to Apple. I thought Steve was just being difficult on the subject until I saw him try to use a pair of ear pods years ago to take a phone call, and they would simply fall right out. It was comical. He put them in, they just go boink and fall right out. So I figure we must talk about the fit of the new AirPods Pro first, because if they don't stay in your ears or are not comfortable, then there's no point in reading or listening any further. The new AirPods Pro are a significantly different design, with most notably a rubbery insert thingy to hold them in even difficult ear holes. I'm sure Apple has some fancy name for the rubbery insert thingy, but I'm going to use my own terminology. The rubbery insert thingy was the medium size by default, and both Steve and I simply could not get them into our ears at all. I swapped it out for the small size, which was kind of a trick to swap it out. 
It was an easy matter to pop the small size off the little piece of cardboard that was holding them that came in the box, but removing the medium rubbery insert thingy from the AirPods Pro was more problematic. One popped off pretty quickly, but it took a lot of prying and swearing to get the second one off. We were hesitant to just yank on it for fear of tearing the rubber. You can see two little dark areas that invite you to stick a thumbnail in there or something, but it wasn't as easy as we'd hoped. In any case, we eventually conquered this task. The good news is that with the small rubbery insert thingy in place, the AirPods Pro fit in my ears comfortably, and they even stayed in Steve's ears, at least through a quick jog down the street. This is a monumental improvement from can't wear them to might work for me for Steve and others with wrong ear holes. At the very end of this, you're going to hear a little bit more from Steve on this. While the AirPods Pro fit my ears and held in place, I instantly disliked them. They felt like ear plugs blocking me out from my surroundings. I guess that's the point of noise-canceling headphones. But this is where things get kind of interesting. AirPods Pro have three modes. Off, which is like hearing through regular ear headphones that are plugging up your ears. Then there's noise cancellation, and I should call it active noise cancellation, which actively counters the sound coming in from the outside and gives you clearer audio coming through the headphones. Then there's transparency mode. This third mode allows some kinds of audio to come through, and I believe it's specifically tailored for human voice. Picture you're on an airplane, and you don't want to hear the sound of the plane, but you do want to hear the lovely flight attendant offering you a cocktail. Transparency mode is designed for this. Now, transparency mode could be a lot safer if you wear your AirPods Pro while walking or running in the real world. When I got my first Bose in-ear noise-canceling headphones, I tried them with active noise cancellation turned on while on my normal walk around the neighborhood with Tesla. I have to say, it was terrifying. I couldn't hear anything, and especially, I could not hear cars. I know soon cars will all be silent like my Tesla car, but it was truly unsettling and it really did feel quite dangerous. Of course, I did a lot of experiments with AirPods Pro in different environments, testing the three modes, and my review is kind of mixed. The best way I can explain transparency mode is that it seems to change the audio coming into your ear to a higher frequency as it lets the sound through to your ears. For example, sitting at my Mac, my fans run fairly often because of the load I put on my Mac, like right now while I'm recording. And, you know, sometimes applications misbehave. Chrome, I'm looking at you. So the fans are running pretty often. With AirPods Pro in either off mode or full noise cancellation mode, I don't notice the fans very much. That's even with them off. But as soon as I switch to transparency mode, the sound of the fans becomes quite shrill in my ears. I tested talking to my good friend Pat Dangler with both of us using AirPods Pro to chat. In noise cancellation mode, her voice was rich and full and sounded like she was in the room with me. But when I tried transparency mode, her voice became very tinny and didn't sound at all like her normal dulcet tones. I did a third test standing outside by a busy street. I was surprised to discover that the full noise cancellation mode did still allow me to hear cars unlike the Bose. They were somewhat muted, but I could definitely hear even their tires on the road. With transparency mode, the sound of the car was more obvious and again at a much higher frequency. I noticed a very odd effect of transparency mode. I walked down the carpeted stairs in bare feet, and I could actually hear the crunch of the carpet under my, under my little pod feet. I think they're amplifying all external audio and then upping the frequency. Now, if you've lost your high-frequency hearing, this might mean you won't hear anything at all with transparency mode. 
I am gifted with continued good high-frequency hearing, and actually to an absurd level that I actually wish would roll off a bit sometimes. This morning, Steve set his uh, shaving cream can down on the counter, and it actually hurt. I kind of jumped when he did it. He didn't, like, slam it down either. It's just, I hear everything at high-frequency. I did have Steve check uh, the headphones in uh, transparency mode, the AirPods Pro in transparency mode, and he too said the high frequency of my fans coming through in that mode was pretty annoying. I mentioned early on that the fit felt odd to me because I felt that my ears were plugged up even with them off. But while on my morning run, I found that the full noise cancellation mode was actually quite pleasing. I do get used to it. It's still a little weird when I first put them in, but I do get used to it. Now, control of AirPods Pro is significantly different than previous models. While versions 1 and 2 of AirPods had no buttons whatsoever, AirPods Pro each have a force-sensitive area, not a button, with which you can control the devices. I had read online about these three modes I've been discussing, and I learned that you can flip through the three modes by squeezing and holding this non-button area. But on my AirPods Pro, I was only able to toggle between what I assumed was transparency and noise cancellation. I was pretty sure I was never experiencing the off mode. On my run, I just happened to be listening to MacBreak Weekly, where Micah Sargent explained that there was a special control center area for controlling AirPods Pro. I stopped the audio and stopped running to check it out. In control center, where you can normally see the volume control, if you have AirPods Pro paired, you'll now see a pair of AirPods Pro on top of the volume slider graph thingy. I think that's a really good way to indicate that holding on that will bring you even more options. And I wish they had indicators on all of their control center icons so people realize they could press for more options. For example, did you know that finally under Wi-Fi, under the Wi-Fi symbol in control center, you can actually change your network? It's epic. Anyway, after you hold on the AirPods Pro icon, you get the full-size volume slider and three buttons for noise cancellation, off, and transparency modes. I was able to control the modes with these three buttons, and I was also able to confirm that pressing the fake button on the AirPods Pro was only toggling between noise cancellation and transparency. This method made me remember that there's a way to control the behavior of AirPods of all flavors. On regular AirPods, you can tap, double tap, and even triple tap anywhere on them to get them to do your bidding and also to fall out of your ears. But to control what happens on the tapping or squeezing of any flavor of AirPods, There's a trick. On the iPhone, open Settings and then Bluetooth. If you have AirPods on and connected, you can see a little eye in a blue circle to the right of the AirPods name. In there, you can disconnect or forget the device and also change the name. But you'll also find control for what happens with tapping and squeezing on the left and right AirPod. Now we'll focus on squeezing AirPods Pro today. The official wording, by the way, is press and hold AirPods. And there's a control for left and right separately. By default, both left and right were set to noise control. Tapping through for each ear, you can choose to keep noise control or you can change one or both to Siri. I looked at the noise control settings and by default, both ears were set to only toggle between noise cancellation and transparency, skipping right over the mode called off. I toggled the off option back on and now I was able to flip between the three options by squeezing. I'm not quite sure why they disabled that mode. As a side note, when you flip between the modes, they make a little different sound. Can't quite describe it, but it's pretty easy to tell which one is which. I think they want you to really like the transparency mode because it's a much more delightful noise than the other two. 
In the same settings section, you can change the noise control mode, and the only thing I can figure is that it's setting the default for when you put them in. In the same area, to control the behavior of the squeezer, there's an option to do an ear tip fit test. The on-screen instructions tell you to put in your AirPods Pro, and it will play an audio test that will confirm whether you have the right fit. The first time I ran it, it said my left AirPod was well-fitting, but on the right it said I should either swap out the tip or adjust the AirPod and try again. I wiggled the AirPod a bit in my left ear and made it a bit more comfortable. I mean, on the right ear. And I made it a bit more comfortable. And then the test said I passed the ear tip fit test. I'm not an audiophile, so I can't actually tell you whether Apple's claim that their continuous adjustment of noise cancellation at 200 times per second, which isn't continuous, by the way, uh, I can't tell whether that's had an effect on the quality of what I can hear. If you've ever had trouble getting other Apple headphones to stick in your ears, Apple's new AirPods Pro might finally allow you to join the cool kids for $250. Now, if that sounds like an outrageous price to pay, consider that the Bose QuietComfort 20 in-ear noise-canceling headphones are also $250, and they're not even Bluetooth. If you're on the fence about playing, paying $250 for a pair of headphones that could break in a year or have a bad battery in a year and a half or get dropped into a toilet two days after you buy them, there is good news. For $29, you can get Apple Care Plus on AirPods Pro. This covers normal hardware problems and two incidences of accidental damage for a service fee of $29 for each incident. Without Apple Care, you get one year of hardware repair coverage, no accidental damage coverage, and 90 days of tech support. I think in the EU and possibly other places, you get a two-year warranty by default, so be sure to check your local coverage before shelling out the extra money. Personally, I buy Apple Care and everything from Apple, and I use the daylights out of it, so I paid the 29 bucks. So far, I like the AirPods Pro, and I think I'll keep wearing them, but I'm not sure they're as comfortable as regular AirPods for me. I still think they're a significant upgrade and will make a lot of people with wrong ear holes happy. Now, speaking of wrong ear holes, I promised to give you some more news from Steve regarding the AirPods Pro. He didn't have a chance to record it, so I'm going to read it for you. Here's what he wrote. Steve here with an update on how the AirPods Pro fit in my hard-to-fit ear canals. That's what I call wrong ear holes. Allison mentioned that I tried them on earlier for a brief half-block jog, but it wasn't a sufficient test to really see if they would stay in my ears during a full run. So today, I tried wearing Allison's AirPods Pro for my full five-mile run on the beach. I have to say I'm impressed. AirPods Pro are the first earboards, earbuds I've worn that have stayed in my ears through an entire workout. I didn't even have to make an adjustment partway through my run to ensure they stayed in my ears. I did have to get used to the pause, play, and skip forward, backward presses on the AirPods Pro stem. I don't like using Siri on my run, but that didn't take but a few attempts before I got it down. Even though I used the full noise cancellation feature on my run, I could still hear enough exterior noise to avoid other runners and bikers coming up from behind to feel safe. Allison and I also did a quick sound comparison between the AirPods Pro and the Powerbeats Pro. We paired my iPhone with both AirPods Pro and Powerbeats Pro at the same time, which is kind of cool. Then we put one AirPods Pro earbud and one Powerbeats Pro earbud in each of our ears, so we were each wearing half and half. Then I was able to individually lower and raise the volume of each set to compare the sound quality that each offered in our left and right ears while we listened to the same song. The bottom line is that though the Powerbeats Pro deliver great sound quality, the AirPods Pro was slightly better, a little richer in sound. 
I have to give it to Apple. I think they actually listened to those people with hard-to-fit ears and made a product that solved our problem, albeit for a relatively stiff price. We are now officially into the holiday shopping season. You have started your Christmas and, and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa shopping, right? That means it's time for the annual reminder to suggest that you use the Amazon affiliate links in the show notes to start your shopping. Let's say you hear me mention a swell product on the show. You know, like the OmniCharge battery pack with USB-C and USB-A charging that I just managed to squeeze into the AirPods Pro conversation. Anyway, you can bet that there's a link to it in the show notes on Amazon. If you click that link and buy the OmniCharge battery pack or you buy something completely else in that same session, a small percentage of what you buy will go to help pay those pesky hosting bills. I appreciate all of you who use the links already. It makes a huge difference. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchatz. Uh There's something important missing from Security Bits this week, Bart. Yeah, n- nothing reached up as high as medium, which is the first time in a very long time. Usually it's a, a fight to figure out what can I demote from becoming, you know, medium number four. <laughs> well, I, no. maybe this is good news or is it death by um, a thousand paper cuts news? <laughs> I'll let the listeners be the judge of that. It, it certainly isn't the case that my RSS reader was empty. It's just little bits of news. Yeah. Um, first off, we have notable security updates. Apple updated everything many times. <laughs> over, over and over again. Over and over again. And then updated yeah. the updates. And Yep. Um, real what is... Lately. What is of note is that iOS 13.2 is in the mix there, which means that Siri uh, now has an option for controlling the human review, which is now ongoing again for users who opt into it. So that is, there's links in the show notes for details about how you how you manage your setting for audio, uh, great or for human review. So this had um, to do with that kerfuffle that people didn't know that or that we were being reviewed by humans. And so they turned it off. But now they made it where, hey, you want to help us out? Say yes. If you don't, that's fine. That's it in a nutshell. Good. Uh, also, very important that this needs to be done by the 3rd of November. So as we record this or this show goes out, oh, this show goes out on the 3rd of November. No, it um, goes out on the 2nd of November. But okay, then- late in the evening. Okay, either way, um, if you have an old iPhone or an old iPad, you absolutely positively have to update it ASAP or it will cease to have the ability to connect to the internet. Um, As a Naked Securities headline put it, got an early iPhone or iPad, update now or turn it into a paperweight. So I didn't understand. I've heard this reported widely and I did not understand exactly what went on here. So this is saying iOS 10.3.4. For the iPhone 5, were iPhone mm. 5s only up to, say, 10.3.3, and this is a new update? Or is this, hey, yes. if you've been dragging your feet all these years, go ahead and do it? My understanding is this is a new update because okay. it's one of those um, Y2K situations, only this time it's the clocks inside of the GPS system that have rolled over. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Now, due to some sort of subtlety with how Apple are doing it, Apple's rollover is a little bit delayed from the rollover of a lot of other GPS devices, which I think was in March this year. 
Hmm. But either way, it's basically a counter clocking all the way around. And without without an appropriate update, stuff will break. Hmm. Um, so hence the software update and the, the, the magic happens on the 3rd of November. So you really want to have your update in place by the 3rd of November. So this is the iPhone 5 and 4S, the cellular-enabled iPad mini, iPad 2, and the, the third-generation iPad. It's hard to tell yeah. from that whether they meant cellular-enabled on all three types of enable, uh, all types of iPad, but whatever you got, go, go update it. Yeah, and if it doesn't offer you an update, you're fine. Well, yeah. you're not fine. You're running an ancient version of iOS, and you can't secure yourself, and you really need a new device. But leaving that aside, <laughs> um, you know, update yourself as far as you can go. All right, uh, And then I want to put a quick PSA in here for anyone who runs their own web servers. There is a nasty bug being exploited in the wild against PHP. You know, it only affects certain configurations, but uh, how's about just playing it safe and updating your PHP? And the way, and uh, you had me do that today, right? I just did. A, so, I mean, a simple yum update was all I did. Wait, was the it will depend on your server. So if you have a Red Hat style server, a Yum update. If you have a Debian style server, an apt-get update. If you have a Windows server, mm-hmm. uh, if you're running MAMP or whatever on a Mac, update your MAMP. Well, wherever you got your PHP, do it again to get the latest version. Um, and it, it's important you do. In terms of notable news then, WhatsApp have filed suit against the grey hat security firm, the NSO Group, who has definitely crossed our radar before, um, because they they sold hacking tools which briefly exploited a WhatsApp bug in order to install spyware on the victim's devices. So the way that now this bug was patched quite quickly, but nonetheless, during the time that the bug existed, NSO group were actively exploiting it. And the way it worked was in order to install your malware, you simply had to place a WhatsApp call, which the person receiving it didn't even have to answer. And the malware Ooh. got installed. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, you know, bugs happen, right? Um, yeah. What makes it particularly bad is that the NSO group sold these tools uh, to people who use them against military and government officials from US allies, which I think has WhatsApp, an American company, particularly upset that the NSO group basically made a profit of of giving enemies of Amer- or giving enemies of America the tools to hack into America's allies. How, how did they how get the, the the gray color to their hat? <laughs> uh, because they claim to only sell to reputable people, but of course, reputable people and allies of America are not the same thing. And it still and, it still seems yeah. that selling to re- reputable people. Uh, an exploit that allows them to install spyware on victims' devices. That that's still I'm having a little trouble with the gray part there. Well, me too. Um, they would see themselves as white, and um, they would see <laughs> me as being very unfair to call them gray. So to be generous, I, yeah. Okay, yeah. so they're they're suing them. That's interesting because they're like a, pretend to be a legit company, huh? Well, they are. I mean, they would say they are a legit company. They're fully registered. They're in Israel, um, making quite a tidy profit. So they are mm. a they are a company. They are in business selling hacking tools. And mm. as of right now, they are not in any sort of prison cell. Mm. So, yeah, they're wow. a legitimate business. Um, bit of news: Apple have removed at least seventeen apps that contained ad clicking malware from the iOS App Store. Now. 
it's very easy for people to get very worried about this story. Um, it needs a little bit of context, which is why it's here. So when we hear malware, we assume that we are being attacked. Right. Ad clicker malware is different. It doesn't actually attack the person running the malware. What it's doing is ad fraud. So what this malware does is load web pages in the background and pretend to click on ads, hence defrauding ad networks. So oh, interesting. And, and wasting your bandwidth and Right. And, so it's I not suppose. completely although you're not being attacked and your data is not being exploited and you're not in any financial danger. Your phone is likely to eat through its battery more quickly because it's busy viewing web pages you're not viewing. Right. And your bandwidth is obviously, like you say, going to get chewed up downloading web pages you're not viewing. So it's entirely mm. appropriate for Apple to step in and yoink the apps, which they did. So that is good. Okay. Um, I think the biggest could news... Be worse. Of th- <laughs> it could be a lot worse. And at the end of the day, the appropriate end for this story and, and the apps were removed and that's that's how this worked. So mm-hmm. that is right. No one again, we're back to it's not pixie dust. It's not unicorns. Apple are do not have some sort of magic to make bad things never happen. You judge companies and how they react when bad things do happen. Right. And, you know, Apple are pretty proactive. They do their best to vet stuff before it goes in. And if you try to vet it before it goes in, you have more chance of succeeding than if you don't. But even then, there's no guarantees, right? It's the right. only... The only perfectly secure computer is one sealed in concrete and never turned on. (laughs) A little bit useless. (laughs) Now, I think the absolute biggest news of the last two weeks is Twitter's announcement that they are going to stop selling political ads anywhere on planet Earth. Yeah, that's... I I bet that's just going to hurt Twitter, actually, is what's going to happen, but I hope not. Well, I don't think it will because it's not their it's it's not a huge source of revenue for them. I've heard I've heard analysts say that hmm. it, their biggest revenue is not from politicians. Their biggest revenue is from people who sell stuff. So oh, by not good. taking yeah, but by not taking the politicians' money, they cease to have you know their hands are not dirty in the same way anymore, and. Any political tweets are now just plain old tweets that you can't buy your way to people's eyeballs. If mm. your tweet earns its way to people's eyeballs, okay. But you can't buy your way to people's eyeballs. And that's a huge change. And what it really, really, really does is undercut Facebook. Because <laughs> what was going to be a separate story, but I think it's all too interrelated to talk about it separately, is right. that uh, a whole bunch of Facebook employees have written to Mark Zuckerberg basically saying, we need to stop selling political ads and Zuckerberg's oh, answer is really? oh no 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 we we couldn't possibly censor the internet and th- that's just horse poop yeah not profiting off political ads is not the same as censoring <clears throat> political speech you can allow politicians to say whatever you want on facebook you can continue with that stupid rule that says they can say anything mm. and not take their money well, they specifically, I, I'm not sure we talked about it on the show because it might have happened in the off week. So just in case that, that mm-hmm. uh, Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg announced that they were going to do no fact checking whatsoever. And no, uh, it basically political ads are exempt from the policy of you can't outright lie. 
Yeah, we did actually. That had broke just as we were recording okay. last week, so we or last time. Okay. What we didn't mention last time is that there was quite a lot of pushback on that, including was it uh, Senator Warren taking out a, an intentionally false oh, ad yeah. to underline the point? What is it she said? Oh, she took out an ad saying she said Facebook Z- Zuckerberg uh, endorsed somebody who he would never have endorsed or something. Yeah, basically, yeah, basically, sort of proving the point, but didn't, even that doesn't seem to have achieved the, the goal. It's it's an untenable position for a start, and the fact that he's continuing to profit off of all of this political mishigas is yeah, it, it's a bad look. And I have to say, Twitter have so put pay to this nonsense; it's wonderful. Yeah, because um, that's not censored at all. I mean, I've, I see just as much horse poop yeah. in my feet as I did before, Absolutely. right? <laughs> yeah, they're separate questions. Do I profit from this and do I allow this to exist? They're separate yeah. questions. So you can stay on your, we don't censor high horse, but that's no excuse for taking money, for mm. profiting off the, and incentivizing all of this evilness going on. It, it's, yeah, just get out of the muck, you know, mm-hmm. step back from the muck. So I think it's wonderful. Um, in related news then, because it all sort of hangs together, the EU has basically sent a fairly strongly worded letter to the social media companies saying, either you guys start fighting fake news more effectively or we guys is going to regulate you guys's, you know what. This is to Facebook. Facebook, Google, Twitter, etc. Oh. The whole lot of them. Oh, oh, okay. Huh. So this is about the not lying more than it is about the um, not taking money, right? Okay, okay. This is the um, problem, huh? UK lawmakers are demanding answers from Facebook on political ads and messaging encryption. So the UK Parliament seems to be finding some time between all of its Brexit shenanigans and its general election to um, bring Facebook in for a little bit of a grilling, which is no harm. And Facebook do deserve some praise. Um, They have pulled fake news networks linked to Russia and Iran. So I guess they don't Hmm. count as politicians because they're... Well, they're not actual politicians, so they're not immune to, you know, policing. Oh, so at least, oh, that's, <laughs> that's an interesting twist. Yeah, because remember, they say that the politicians themselves are free to lie, but not that anyone is free to lie on behalf of a politician. No, that's interesting. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm sorry. There's just some irony in there. I know. Yeah, you have to do I your own dirty work. It. Basically, you can't outsource. Yeah. Um, And then a very interesting opinion piece. So this isn't a fact story like I tend to stick to, right? Ordinarily, I would have put this down and suggested reading under opinion and analysis, but I'm bringing it up here because it's very much related. It's an article on the Lawfare blog, basically outlining mechanisms in international law that Facebook could use to set up this concept of a sort of a high court for content moderation that Zuckerberg has proposed. And Hmm. to do it in such a way that no country could actually ruin the process by basing it on international law, which they've all signed up to. Very clever. And, you know, written by lawyers. So I won't say it's easy reading, but I I thought it was interesting. So there we go. I'll have David Roth read it and then tell me what it says. Yeah, yeah, actually. And if if he might want to do a little interview on, you know, it would be lovely. Mm. Anyway. Um, and finally, because we like to end on good news, Firefox 70 is out and it contains the usual patches, yada, yada, yada. 
But Firefox are continuing their attack on tracking and their attack, they're basically their defense of privacy. And they've now added basically visibility to the privacy protections they have in place. So they've added UI elements to allow you to see just how much tracking is being done against you. So as you're browsing around, all the little counters are clocking up and then you can click and see how many bajillion trackers have been trying to track you and how many were blocked, etc. Wow. So it's it's nice to bring this out into the open, basically. So it's Have you it's played around clever. with it? Have you seen where they show you that? I haven't had a chance to play with it in any great detail yet. And really, I think you'd need to be using it for a week or two, I think, for the for the information to become interesting. Yeah, I just uh, I just ran the update while we were chatting, um, and it says uh, it says that my phone is still on. Let me get rid of that. Um, it started up with "Stay ahead of hackers, check for data breaches with Firefox Monitor," and if you can sign up for Firefox Monitor. I wonder if that's part of what it is. Two thousand plus types of tracks blocked automatically. Trackers blocked automatically. I think the monitor might be something slightly. Different. I mean, this is Firefox 70 is a big update. So they also have a bunch of additional features added to their built in password manager. Um, There's actually quite a lot in this update. Um, So there's actually three links in the show notes because everyone focuses on something else. So between I'm More Naked Security and Tidbits, you sort of get an overview of all the different things in this new version. But it's it's one of their quad annual Four times a year. Quarterly, that's the word. One of their big <laughs> quarterly updates. Um, so it has quite a bit rolled into it. Okay, cool. That looks fun. Well, believe it or not, Alison, we're on to suggested reading. Um, wow. Now, quite a few of these have a star next to them, which so I'm going to call them out. But, okay. you know, that's that's kind of it in terms of the big news, which is okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're two weeks. Um. In terms of PSAs, tips, and advice, we have two article. We have, ooh, how did? Oh no, sorry, we have two Four. articles. They so just one after the other. Um, on the new security features in macOS Catalina. So one is from How to Geek, um, and the other one is from Intego, and they're basically explaining what's behind the new alerts you get within Catalina. Um, so are these? Uh I'm not familiar with much of Catalina yet since I haven't been allowed to go yet. Uh what kind of what kind of things are these? Okay, well, I have gone Catalina on my work machines. So okay. personal me is is still holding back. Although I think with Hazel being updated this week, I think I'm actually good to go when I yeah, decide Hazel I have the energy. Fission came through just now. Um yeah, I, I I'm waiting for Don McAllister to tell me I'm okay to go with uh with uh uh Screenflow. But other than um, they claim to be ready, but I don't go until Don tells me I can. That seems like a good call since you sort of <laughs> he, work for Don. So. Boss. Yeah. Um, no, I, I did go on my work machines. Um, so when apps, when any app, in fact, tries to access certain newly protected things like your documents folder, you just get a little pop up basically saying, do you want to allow this app to access your documents? Um, one that surprised me, but really, hang on, on. stop right there. Your documents folder. So like you open pages and you want to have pages, open up a pages document that's in your documents folder. You're going to get a pop-up. No, because 
If you proactively open the file by using a file picker or by dragging and dropping from the finder, then you have already pre-consented. It's if the app tries to access by itself without you doing it, then you get the pop-up. Okay. So it's much cleverer than that. So if I double click on a pages file and it opens pages, that's okay too. That's okay too, because you proactively gave the file to the app, right? The OS intercepted your double click and passed the file to the app. Therefore, the app doesn't need to ask for permission. But if you do something like open your terminal for the first time and go CD space tilde forward slash documents, the terminal will appear to hang. A pop-up will come up and say, terminal that app would like to access your documents, allow or deny. Huh. And you Um, click allow and it's done. Right, that's it. You're finished. Like, it's not onerous. What can be a little disconcerting. Even though you just told it you wanted to go to documents, but you didn't, that... Well, in my case, I was tab completing, so I didn't really tell it. Right, I, I tab completed. I didn't open something using a system dialog, right? right I started typing right. and hit the tab key. Hmm. So that means that Bash went off by itself to figure out what I might have meant. Yeah. yeah. So actually, or not Bash? Actually, sorry, it's not Bash. It's yeah, exactly. Gotcha. That'll only take a decade to stop, right? I know. I know. Thankfully, they're mostly compatible. We need to do. I have two, completely off topic here, but I actually have two Taming the Terminals half written. Oh, um, goody. Because we need to do ZSH, which is going to be a big one. And yeah. I've also been playing with a command line tool for processing JSON, which is just so cool. Ooh, how fun. It's called, how fun. Yeah, it's called JQ, and I've been using it an awful lot in work. And so I want to talk about it because it's cool and fun. So as I say, that's off topic. uh, Actually, back on topic, though, um, I I opened up and I'm going to start reading your series, your six part series on ZSH, because I realized I don't know whether all of my little scripts I've written are going to work when I go to Catalina. Probably they will. Oh, shh. You know, I'll never but, read No, it. no. I'll never read and study no, you should tell me the answer. But the thing is, if it doesn't work, have a look and see if I have run into the same problem you have. Yeah, yeah. Um, but on the whole, remember, ZSH is like the child of Bash. So Bash is the, the successor to SH, and ZSH is the successor to Bash. So they are... They made very few breaking changes. The only time they made breaking changes was where Bash was just stupid. And a lot of times Bash was stupid because Bash's hands were tied behind its back because it had to be completely compatible with, with SH. Oh, okay. Bash had to be a drop-in replacement for the SH. And of the ZSH is, yeah, so ZSH has kind of said, look, we're prepared to break the odd thing for some sanity because maybe stuff from the 70s doesn't need to live on. But on the whole, it's pretty compatible. Uh, Anyway, what was I actually... Oh, yeah. So my experience has been, if you have a new Mac, it's not going to be this Windows Vista-esque experience everyone's telling you about. The only time you get that experience is if you upgrade in place an existing Mac with 20 million menu bar apps that start the first time the OS launches, because each of those menu bar apps is going to need permission to do its thing. Oh, okay. And they're all starting the moment you boot your machine up. So you are going to get this flood of, hello, I'd like to send you notifications. I'd like to read your file system. I'd like to do this. I'd like to do that. I'd like to write permission to do this. 
How do uh, you possibly avoid that, right? You, uh, you uh, have basically insta-installed 20 apps. Of course they need to ask for their permissions. That's the whole bloody point. Right. But if you do a clean install and you start to slowly bring your apps in, it's not going to be like that. You're going to get it the first time you launch an app that needs a permission. So, so I'm there, not there seeing a, what everyone's who there was a really is about, funny, right? There was a really funny moment at Mac Tech. Uh, Sal Segoyan got up and he played the uh, Mac versus PC ad from the old days where it was during the Windows Vista time and John Hodgman is standing there with this uh, this guy that looks like an FBI agent behind him and every single thing he tries to say or do, it comes up with it's, you know some sort of warning and says, uh, you know, ignore or allow, or allow or deny, allow or deny, allow or deny. And he has to keep saying it over and over and over and over again. And then it fades to black and he puts up the logo for Catalina. <laughs> See, I think that's deeply unfair. Well, but it was funny. It was funny. The point was funny. That's how he was just trying to be humorous. I I understand what you're saying, and I think it's logical, but there is the danger of people just going, okay, 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 okay. Yeah, but it's never the same question twice. That's the difference with with Mm. Vista, right? Yeah. I have now, it didn't take me long. Uh, within 24 hours of having installed Catalina, I was done with all that shenanigans, right? Yeah. The apps that wanted to do stuff have their stuff. It's not like Vista where it's always constantly and continuously blackening your screen and making you do it again. No, yeah. everything asked for its permission. I gave it its permission. It's now happy. It's, it is different. So I, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed to hear people basically beat Apple up for giving us security and privacy. I think I, I can see both sides, Bert. Bert part. Gee, where'd Bert come from? Um, I, can, I can see both sides. No, I'm Ernie. And, 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 and I do want to say we upgraded Steve's parents to Catalina uh, this this week, which I thought was mm-hmm. was the craziest thing ever, but it seems to have Brave. gone smoothly. Uh, yeah, Steve thought, nah, it'll be fine. And it turns out they don't use anything. So basically nothing, you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing happened. happened. Yeah. I mean, Steve's dad uses Excel and Safari and mail, I think. And that was about it. And uh, right. Steve's mom yeah, and is he's a little gonna... more creative, but she is much better at the computer than he is. And so she'll just look at it and go, oh, I understand that. Well, I'm going to answer it like this. Yeah. And Excel, like I'm, you're, you're going to love the fact that I am now a heavy Excel user in my professional <laughs> life, having been an Excel hater for a long time. But Office 365 has changed me. Anyway. Excel and Word, they don't need permissions for anything because I am opening Word documents. They're not opening themselves. Right, right. Yeah, so they never ask me for anything, which is grand. The, the one it thing really I, is I, mostly I, the menu bar stuff. Well, I expect to have about six or eight hours of of that uh, experience to go on because I'm a menu bar fanatic. But uh, um, I, I am curious to see whether the notifications make sense. Like I, I was noticing in the How to Geek article that you, you mentioned here that if you try to use something to record the screen, you'll get a pop-up saying, did you actually want to allow this app to record the screen? Even though you yep. explicitly just said, I want to make a screen recording, that's that's really obvious, right? Um, what bothered me was in uh, iOS 13, where it would ask you, uh, is it okay to use, can this app use Bluetooth? And I'm thinking, well, it's an audio app, of course it should, but that's not what that question meant. It, it, yeah, the Bluetooth one is difficult because the permission covers a lot more than only the evil stuff Facebook were doing. Mm-hmm. But the reason the permission had to be done is because we can't have nice things. Yeah. 
but and it could have you can say no to that and still listen to the audio. So yeah, they could kind make, of yeah unfortunate because that one makes you not understand. But the other ones seem to be, and luckily I think they got us used to the pop-ups with the whole, okay, you're going to have to give full disc access to this app. Okay. You're going to have to give full disc access to this one. I think we we're at least used to that one. Right. Right. And the thing is I haven't been asked for full disc access yet. What I've been asked for is access to my documents folder, which is even more tied down than full disc access, which is actually nice that we have that granularity. Then you haven't run your backup software. Uh, my work backups are done using um, the, the, the time machine um, and everything that needs to be kept safe is in OneDrive. So, so I, there is, I, we I, do I'm not, not have, talking about Catalina. I'm talking about in, uh, in uh, Mojave. I've got like, I don't know, I've got a ton of stuff. Uh, All right. Okay. Personal me. Amazing. Backblaze. Super duper. Yeah. Right. Personal me, who has not upgraded, will run into that. Okay. Work me. We work off the model that if my laptop explodes, I will be handed a fresh one. I will connect it to OneDrive and I will be where I left off. Right. Right. We work off the model that the the Mm -hmm. computer is a dumb terminal, so it does not have that kind of backup software installed. So I haven't run into that. I will when I get you know, when personal me makes the plunge, I will run into that. But, but I don't I ran, mind granting full all disk access. I ran into on Mojave. I'm not talking about Catalina, the full disk. disk oh, well, then I guess I did on Mojave, but that's so long ago I forgot it. Okay. <laughs> because I am definitely doing that stuff at home. I did it um, yesterday, I, so. I guess the big difference is in, in uh, Mojave, the only option was full disk, right? It was all or nothing. Whereas now we have these more granular permissions to just your documents which is a lot less dangerous because while it can see your files it can't break your computer hmm. that is nice to be able to break that down a little bit it also means you can't see into other apps if you only grant access to the documents folder that means one app can't spy on another app again that, you know I, least per, the principle of least permissions is good so if an app needs full disk access it can be granted full disk access but there is a there is a more restrictive choice okay so like backup software yes i need full disk access but other yes. things maybe not so much yeah this is interesting and so f- uh, yeah and so far the other things have been asking for basically what they need not asking for oh just give me full disk access they've been more granular which is good i assume if you keep things in folders that aren't like the documents aren't the documents folder. If you have other parallel folders there, you will also be asked those questions. I do not know because that is an extremely bad way to work. Um, Why? I do. Well, because the point of the documents folder is it's the folder where you're supposed to keep your stuff and everything about the system is set up that way. So if you put your stuff elsewhere, then you're sidestepping. I don't know. I think at that stage you're into full disk access is what the app will have to ask for. Hmm. But as long as you're the one double-clicking the app, it doesn't matter where it came from, right? It's only it's only if the app tries to go there so by itself, and I, then it's going to be going lo- to standard locations. I so think, I think you're missing probably something fine. very important. A lot of uh, a lot of applications keep things in iCloud Drive in folders created by themselves. So like right, Affinity but they're, Photo, they access... if you open Affinity Photo on your Mac and on your iPad, you're going to get a folder in iCloud Drive with things in it. Right, but they're accessing that using the macOS APIs, which means they're accessing it through the iCloud API. They're not accessing it through the raw file system. When they're accessing stuff inside their containers, the OS is doing that on their behalf. It's not raw file system access. They're using APIs. Um, They're sandboxed apps, so they have to go through APIs, and the API Mm -hmm. they're using for that is not 
Show I, me the full file. I use iCloud Drive like I use Google Drive or Dropbox. I know, but the OS is handling folders. that, right? The app interacts with iCloud no, no, Drive. No, you're not listening to me. I've, I'm, I'm continuing down this road. Like my, I, if you don't want to okay. sync your documents and desktop, so maybe your documents has personal stuff you don't want in the, the cloud, but you want to have sure. a folder that you do use iCloud for, iCloud Drive for, sure. then you would have documents in iCloud Drive that are not in your documents folder. That doesn't seem like I'm misbehaving in my operating system or something. Okay, but the only way an app can get those is if you double-click them. There is no way the app can reach into those and just grab them behind your back. Right, but you were saying it was a, it was an incorrect way to to deal with a file system to put something outside of your documents folder. And I, I would contend stand by that argument. I think it's bad practice. I think it leads to problems. But that's an opinion of mine that your people are free to shout at me for. <laughs> I just strongly believe you should follow the guidelines on these things. Okay, show me the written guideline that says I'm supposed to do that. It's called documents, self-documenting. Anyway, that's nah. a complete rabbit hole. I have a very strongly held view on this, which I will strongly defend, but I am entirely prepared to admit that you are... All right, we'll have a beer sometime and fight it out some more. That, that is exactly what this opinion is meant for. It's <laughs> <laughs> The kind where nobody can prove they're right. I like it. Yeah, I mean, and I'll, I'll freely admit it, it, right? It's just I, I have a strongly held view on the matter. Right. Okay. That was okay. So that turned out to be a bit of a, but a useful. Anyway, yeah, you don't want to hear us it. yak about it. Two good articles to read about it. And then Naked Security have a very good one um, that I think we should all remind ourselves of storing your stuff securely in the cloud, because the cloud is where so much of our stuff goes. So it's probably worth reminding ourselves what we should be watching out for and, you know, what is good cloud and what is evil cloud. So. Hmm. You know, nice article from Naked Security there. One I have bookmarked for sharing with family and friends at future dates when they ask me questions like, can I use blah, blah, blah? "Mm, Have a read of this. (laughs) Um, One thing that uh, this, I just scanned real quickly the things this says. um, uh, One of the lines says, always follow the principle of least privilege. And one Mm -hmm. of the ways I explained to all these pop-ups that that Steve's mother was going to be seeing was I said, if you don't understand what it is and it doesn't make sense to you why they would need it, say no. If you later Mm -hmm. on find out you're going to need it, you can always say yes later. Like if this says I want to use the camera and you're like, well, I'm not giving you the camera. And then you try to do a Skype session with us and the camera won't work. You'll know, oh, I need to go give it access to the camera. Makes perfect sense. So if you don't know, say no. Yes, and exactly. It's not a permanent ban. It's just a no, not now. And then it will become clear to you. Oh, now I see. Yeah, I think she was a little worried if she said no, that meant no ever. Yeah. The nice thing is when you go into the privacy uh, section within your your preferences, any app that's asked for permissions will be listed with a checkbox. And so the checkbox will obviously not be checked if you said no. But to say yes, you just tick and hey, presto, the app now has the permission. Yeah. yeah, which is nice. And if you want to preempt pop-ups, you can proactively go to the full disk access one and drag and drop any app you like from your applications folder into that permission, and then those apps won't even have to ask. So if you know that you have an app that you want to see everything, just drag and drop it in and be done with it. 
Yeah. Cool. Or just wait for it to I've, ask I've and say yes. That some of the developers have coming up with really creative ways to do that. Um, I just installed Carbon Copy Cloner yesterday. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in the instructions, it says, you're going to need to give us full disk access. Open up system preferences, full disk access, you know, authenticate. And then it says, now drag this little fish there. <laughs> and yeah, which fish. is going to be a link to their app, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. It was in this pop-up, and I dragged the little fish, and then I had it in there. And I, I don't even know why it was a fish, because their loco's not a fish, but I got to move a fish, yeah. and that was fun. Yeah, well, I guess it worked. Yeah. Because it, what could have been an annoyance turned into, tee-hee, look at the fish. <laughs> now, unfortunately, we need to pay a brief visit to Annoyance Land. Um, notable breaches and privacy violations. Adobe. Have done it again. Not as bad this time. They haven't lost anyone's passwords, be they plain text or hashed, and they haven't lost anyone's payment information. But they have yet again lost everyone's email addresses and all of the subscription details for their Creative Cloud products. So in terms of constructing a believable phishing attack, it's exactly what you want. Because they can tell you, when your subscription started, what products you're subscribed to, and what your current subscription status is. So if I was an evil person, the first thing I would do would be to put that into Excel, sort it by subscription status, and have everyone who's behind on their payment and start sending them email demanding payment with all of the correct details and my some way of receiving their money. Oh, yeah. I didn't... You know, when I was re- reading ahead as you were reading it, I was thinking, oh, what's a big deal? It doesn't have any payment information, no passwords. This is just, you know, small fish, but yeah. But it's it's fish is the right word, Alison, just with a PH. <laughs> yeah. And an awful, awful lot of value is stolen through phishing. And this kind of thing makes spear phishing very easy. You can yeah. spear fish en masse with this kind of a breach. Normally it takes effort to do some research to spear fish. But if someone gives you 7.5 million pre-made spear fishes, they're not good. Fish not with good. spears hovering above them. Do um, yep. Can I say something nice about Adobe that has nothing to do with security? Oh, please. Uh, with Creative Cloud, they just announced uh, they're bringing fonts to iOS. Like I know, whole... I installed the app. Like Literally, I went straight from my RSS reader into the app store and installed the app, and there are hundreds of fonts oh, in there that I can just I'm stick so onto jealous. I want, I, I'm so jealous. I like fonts. That's, it's I a very it. easy solution. You take your hard-earned cash and you give it to Adobe, <laughs> and then you're included <laughs> in this 7.5 million <laughs> data breach, as I am. Uh, Again. Again. <laughs> All right, yes, back to bad yeah. news. What other breaches we got? Network solutions register.com and web.com. In other words, great big domain registrars. That is never good because that means DNS hijacking. It's just a really good reminder that you should be very careful in choosing your domain registrar and always, always, always pick one that has two factor authentication. Mm. Very important. There is more bad news in there, particularly for NordVPN, who get to feature in two stories, but I will leave those for listeners to read at their leisure. I want to jump on to notable IoT vulnerabilities. Um, first off, Alexa and Google Home have both had the same attack demonstrated against them. Attackers can insert a special character into their apps, which makes the 
devices not stop listening. They basically pause for a very, very long time. So it seems to you, the user, that the app has finished doing its thing. And then it asks you for your password or some or your payment information. Basically, it asks you for something sensitive, pretending to be Alexa or Google, not the app. So it's basically voice phishing. Oh, jeez. Yeah, very That's dangerous. Super creepy. Super creepy. And the scary thing is this is a rehash of a vulnerability that everyone thought had been fixed, but apparently hadn't been fixed very well, which makes it even more disturbing. So these devices are still very beta. These are This is new. This is cutting edge. And that means this is dangerous. So just keep your suspicion levels high when you're using these devices. You are on, you're in the Wild West. Behave appropriately. So have and the next one is fixed. Is the vulnerability nope. been fixed? I do not believe so. Um, the response was, oh, well, that's not allowed according to our terms of service. We'll throw the offending apps that you have told us about out of the store. But that doesn't stop new stuff appearing in the store tomorrow, right? You, yeah. A new skill could be added tomorrow. So th- it's been band-aided. But just a band-aid. Uh, the next one's kind of slightly funny. So the Vatican keep trying to be hip and cool. Um, they haven't realized that sticking the word E in front of it is so last century. <laughs> but they've made an E-rosary and they've managed to fill it full of nasty security vulnerabilities while they were at it. So mm. praying digitally does not appear to be a very safe thing to do. I guess you mm. need to pray for your digital safety. It sort of made me lull. Um, in terms of news... The BBC have done something very interesting. They have moved their news website into the dark web, into Tor, to help beat censorship. So people keep on assuming that the dark web is only for evil. But no, the dark web is just a place to be anonymous. And it so happens that a lot of evil people want to be anonymous. There's also a lot of activism without Tor. An awful lot of freedom fighters and an awful lot of civil rights people would really suffer and so it's really interesting to see the bbc take the potential pr hit and go into the dark web officially an interesting move is this going to be that example like remember how uh people always said that uh uh that these downloading sites are evil but we would say no no you could get linux distros that way uh <laughs> this would be our no no the dark the dark web is not evil because look the bbc is there I don't think that's quite, it's not completely irrelevant as a comparison, but the order of magnitude is definitely different because the dark web has always had legitimate uses before it had illegitimate uses and that never went away and it hasn't gone away. Yeah. But it doesn't make as much news as, ooh, it's full of drugs. Right. And worse. Right. Uh, So it's not quite the same, but it's not entirely different either. It's a matter of degree. Um. I get to say something nice about Uber, which is why I put a star next to this story, because I desperately do want to say nice things about Uber from time to time. Uber are suing the city of Los Angeles to protect the uh, geolocation data of its scooter riders. They they say that the city is asking them to divulge PII and they are fighting it. And the city said, no, 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 we want this information. So I'm happy to see Uber fight that. Hmm. And I also get to say two nice things about Facebook, which is why I put stars next to those. There's there's more in Facebook news that doesn't have a star next to it because it's not happy, shiny news. But these two I put a star next to it because they are happy, shiny. So Facebook has developed a tool which can obfuscate an image so that AI can't recognize it as the same face anymore, but humans can't tell it's been altered. 
So this is a way we could have facial recognition by people like Facebook not work. It's kind of bizarre that Facebook have a group of people trying to steal our privacy and a group of people trying to protect our privacy all wrapped up in the one organization. Interesting. Um, I don't, and I Instagram don't, I'm, wait, what? <laughs> okay, take a photo of Allison. Okay. Run it through this algorithm. It will still look like Allison to a human, but AI will not recognize as the same person. So we'll not be able to match you across multiple photographs. So what, what problem does this solve? You being tracked all across the internet. Okay. Okay. Without this kind of obfuscation, every photograph of you could be recognized by an AI and connected together. With this technology, they can't do that. But people looking at the pictures will still recognize you as you. Isn't that just until the AI figures it out? That sounds Uh, like a beginning of a good game of whack-a-mole to me. It might be. I am not qualified to answer that question and it's in suggested reading so i didn't spend enough time to give an even vaguely intelligent answer okay so maybe (laughs) Uh, instagram have strengthened the rules on self-harm and suicide content i can't find a bad i can't find a way to make that a bad news story no um opinion and analysis then i have three stars um the the guardian have what quite a disturbing story about spy at, but the way american schools spy on kids mm-hmm. it's it's well worth reading a lot of schools have signed up to programs where either it's school owned devices spy on everything the kids do or it's school owned email that spies on everything the kids do with the school owned email on any device or in the absolute worst cases it's that the school and parents work together to force school surveillance apps to be installed on all devices that the kids use, which is like really, really big brother stuff. What are they doing with it, this information? Well, to some, see, it's this is where it gets all gray and I can't say, it, oh, this is evil because it is being used to prevent suicide and self-harm and it is completely, totally not removing the kids' ability to have private conversations and making them paranoid. So... The uh, the article is very balanced, and you'll find yourself doing 180 degree turns in your opinion as you read from paragraph to paragraph, and you'll find yourself basically going, ah, nuts, this isn't an easy one. Yeah. Which is most annoying. Yeah. <laughs> On balance, I think I'm against, but it was by no means a slam dunk. Okay. A very interesting article. And then an interesting opinion piece on Tech Dirt. DOJ's latest child porn takedown shows encryption isn't really stopping the feds from fighting child porn. In other words, you do not need to break all of our encryption everywhere to do law enforcement because encryption is only between the end points. You can still get the stuff at the ends. And basically this whole argument about, oh, well, someone think of the children is spurious and this proves it. Or this is not proves. This is a data point supporting that argument. It's it's an interesting take, yeah. um, which is why I link to it. And then a very interesting opinion piece. So you remember the San Bernardino case? Yes. Well, the guy who was the FBI's lawyer for that has now left the FBI and he's had a wee bit of a rethink. And he now understands that encryption is actually vital to the safety and survival of the American way of life. And he has written an opinion piece outlining his new opinions, which is very different to what he was arguing on behalf of the FBI. 
So that's kind of interesting because you can be a lawyer fighting for a specific thing that you don't believe in. In fact, you need to be able to do that because otherwise you're not actually qualified to be a lawyer. Right, right. So, I mean, I wonder whether he believed this all along or whether uh, he has learned. I haven't read the article. He might say that. Well, from my reading, I mean, it's it's a first person article. And my under, the way I read it is that he has changed his mind. Yeah. Interesting. Or he has, his views have developed much more nuance, have deepened, which is, again, good. Uh, there's more stuff, but I'll leave it to listeners' discretion. I want to jump to a palate cleanser as we round out the show. Good. So th- this is true palate cleanser. Nothing whatsoever to do with security in any way, shape, size, or form. <laughs> it's just nerdery fun. So CGP Grey does amazing videos. Yes. Well, he has a new one out, and it asks what's probably a very simple question you would think. Which is our nearest planetary neighbour? I can just hear you say, oh, it's probably Mars. Mm-hmm. Maybe Venus. You're wrong. (laughs) I will not spoil it because it's... I happen to know this already because of a certain guy called Neil deGrasse Tyson, Uh whose podcast I listen to. But for most people, this will be a real... Oh! Well, now you put it that way. Uh, But the answer is neither Mars nor Venus. Oh, how fun. I can't wait to look at it. I love CGP Grey. Can't can't pronounce his name correctly, but... uh... Okay, and that is not just me, because I always get the G and the P the wrong way around as well. CPG is what I always say. CGP Grey. Anyway, link in show notes. It's not long. It's the usual fun style, and it's it's interesting. Yay. Well, as always, Bert, for some reason, I'm hearing Bert in my head today. What's up with that? I don't know where that's coming from, but thank you, Bart. This has been great. Even though we had a, didn't have a security medium, I managed to trick you into talking about some of the stories a little deeper than usual. So that was fun for me anyway. A sort of a, a medium on demand. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, we'll see you again uh, next time. Indeed. And until then, remember, everyone, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. You too can be as cool as Ryan Winkler and send in a dumb question. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at podfeed. Remember, anything you want starts with podfeed.com. You could go to, uh, you want to become a patron of the Podfeed podcast, podfeed.com slash Patreon. You want to join our Facebook group, podfeed.com slash Facebook. You want to join our Slack community like Chris did this week and got a really important question in that I'm going to talk about next week. That's at podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show like Jill did for the first time this week, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. We miss you this week, Kevin. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.